Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jonathan Mayo and Sam Dykstra. An ailing Jim Callis will be sort of with us. Jim's going to talk to a top 100 prospect, Hunter Brown of the Astros, which was recorded before Jim fell ill. Uh, So we'll hear from Hunter coming up a little later on. And then we are going to do a draft of the top 100 prospects list. Uh, Jim, Sam, Jonathan, and myself will each draft one player per position from our top 100 list. It works out quite nicely when using players' secondary positions. There is at least one player uh, available for each position for each team. Uh, We will do that uh, a little bit later on in the show, and then we'll wrap up by answering a couple questions from the mailbag. So guys, the, the, the big, big thing for us uh, over the past several weeks has been putting together the top 100 prospects list, the top 10 by position list that led into it. Um, but the, the coup de gras being the uh, top 100 prospects list, which came out uh, last Thursday a show on MLB network, uh, Jonathan and Jim, great job on that show. Enjoyed that as immensely as always. You guys did a terrific job. Thank you. Um, and now the the list itself. So this is, uh, Jonathan, this is the 20th top 50 slash 100 prospects list uh, that has been put out on MLB.com. Uh, you have been a part of all 20 of them. Today, I should specify preseason. Um, we've also started doing mid-season lists somewhere along the line, uh, 2013, I think it was. Um, but you, you started this, uh, back before Sam was born. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly. Not, not quite. Uh, but yeah, uh, 20 top 50 slash 100 prospects lists now. Uh, wow. It's, it's it's been quite a ride. I'm now going to rattle off. All, All the names them. in order <laughs> set to music. No. Um, yeah, we, you know, we started this back in, in 2004, right? I should say you, you did. Do you, do you re- remember that first list? Like how it came about, how it was assembled? I, I want, I, I remember from, I think the first one I was involved in was 2005 and it was more of like a, a poll, right? Yeah. And just, taking the votes and uh, assigning them a number uh you know everybody ranked them ranked prospects one to 50 and and there wasn't nearly as much that went into it then is that fair to say no that is fair to say i mean so i you know i started doing minor league coverage on the site in 2003 and you know at that point there wasn't a whole lot else out there baseball america put out rankings obviously and uh, you know i thought we should do them and someone agreed to it and and that is exactly how I did it. I think I sent out uh, an ask to you know as many pro scouts, GMs. The, there were some farm directors in there that I knew at the time, uh, and asked them to rank you know however x amount of guys, and and I dropped it into a spreadsheet. And I might may have tweaked it a little bit here and there, but by and large, the way they voted, how the you know, the cumulative vote went is how I ended up coming up with the top 50. So it, it's, it's obviously grown since then, um, you know, to the team, to the team lists, to the update list mid season, to top 100, 
so it's been it's been a fun and ridiculously long ride. You're kind of the same general process, right? I mean, and now it's there are three of you. The list has expanded from fifty to one hundred, but you're still talking to people in the industry, getting feedback from, and I, I think there's some confusion maybe or some a lack of clarity about you know how this is done, and people think you know how much of this is your own opinions versus what you're hearing from the industry. But it's, it's would you say it's largely the, the same process, like at the root of it? I, I think so. Obviously, our opinion figures into it. Uh, I think we've just talked about this a bit before, but Sam, Jim, and I will come up with our own top 125s and combine those and uh, tweak it a little bit after we average it out and then send it out for feedback. And then we'll make moves based on on feedback. And we got a lot of feedback this year. I mean, we sent that to 40 some odd people in, in the industry. And I think where it's the same at the root is that while, yes, our opinion figures into it a little bit, we, our list, and Sam, jump in, tell me if you, know, if, if, uh, if you have a sort of a different interpretation, but our list tries to be a reflection of what the industry, meaning like the scouting, you know, and player evaluation industry thinks of these players and not based on our evaluation of of the players. I mean, for me, even my opinion, yeah, maybe I saw a guy in the fall league, but uh, my opinion is largely based on the conversations I'm having with those people in the scouting world, as opposed to other lists out there who go about it a little differently and may do it based on their view of, of, of and their personal evaluations of players. Yeah. I mean, if, if anything, it's always an informed opinion, right? If we're coming to it saying like, I think Jordan Walker is number four. Well, it's, it's done that because I've talked to people in the Cardinals and I've seen a little bit of him, but also we've talked about other people or talked to other people around the industry. I mean, if we were just basing it off one opinion, then it would not be a, a very good reflective list. It would just be, you know, the Jonathan Mayo top 100 or the Jim Callis top 100 or Sam Dykstra top 100. We're trying to reflect something. I mean, we're trying to capture lightning in a bottle here because nobody knows exactly how the, all this stuff is going to shake out, but you want as many opinions as you can get, as many diverse opinions as you can get. You You don't want just everybody from the Diamondbacks ro rolling in or you don't want everybody from the NL East rolling in. You want people who have seen guys from a variety of backgrounds, uh, and that includes ourselves. I mean, it, it starts at the foundation with what we know. But Jonathan, I don't know if if this is true of you, you or not, but like I, I may submit my one twenty five, but I always know it's going to change. I'm not going to go to bat because I had James Wood at fifteen, and I think he has to be fifteen because I had it at fifteen, even if other people are telling us to bump him down ever so slightly, like. I, I trust the industry more than I trust my original instincts and, and being that flexible is how we land at the list that we do. It, it's, it's always changing. It's always moving. Um, and it's better off for it. Yeah. And, and, and it's, we're, we're well aware of how inexact this is and how subjective it is. You know, people get very uh, animated, you know, about who's on the list and who's not on the list. Listen, this is why we do it and why we've done it for, for years, and I think why any publication or website d does these things is you want people to debate it. But I'm the first to admit, we're like, well, you know, over the last 20 years, you know, like, well, that was wrong, you know, or wow, we got that one right. You know, it, it, 
it's going to happen in both directions, no matter what. It's player evaluation, no matter how you're doing it, is completely subjective. So, you know, one scout may love a player, and another scout may see the same player and really not like him at all. And so that that's what makes this such a, a volatile and interesting exercise. Yeah, and I'll just, you know, go back to the most recent example of like looking at the 2022 major league season. Aaron Judge was the best player in baseball. Uh and I mean you could maybe quibble like Choi Tani or whatever, but Aaron Judge had a really special season. Aaron Judge was never the number one overall prospect. Uh, the development continues beyond our rankings. This is not set in stone of this is who these guys are going to be forever. We can try to guess, we can try to project out, and that's basically what we're trying to do. But sometimes these guys take off in other directions after they graduate, after their prospects, or even while they're prospects, and we try to capture them at that moment. Um, but, you know, so it's always going to happen that we're going to look back on this and, and think, like, why did this happen? But all we can do is be reflective of the time that we are in. Yeah, Judge actually uh, debuted on the top 100 list at number 68. Uh, got as high as number 21. Uh, we want to move on to the uh, this year's list. But before we do, uh, Jonathan mentioned that we talked about that very first list in 2004. Um, and, and you talked about, you know, looking back and seeing things that were wrong. The wrongest a list has ever uh, that uh, there's ever been on a list was from that first list. Do you know who it was? This is the, the highest ranked player ever to not make the big leagues was on the first list. It was number three overall, Greg Miller, uh, Dodgers left-hander. Uh, um, this is why sometimes but, people in the, in, you know, in the scouting industry say there's no such thing as a pitching prospect because injuries, you know, and that, uh, and then he couldn't find the strike zone. And I think if you had talked to anybody back then, and Greg Miller was the, the best pitching prospect in baseball or certainly the best left-handed yeah. pitching prospect in baseball. So. Yeah, he was. Uh, would you believe that there are players from that list still playing? I would believe that. I, I guess it makes sense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they have to be a- around for a long time. But number four on that list, as a matter of fact, was Royals right-handed pitching prospect Zach Greinke, who's just as of uh, yesterday re-signed with the Royals. Uh, some, you know, like twenty years later. Uh, also on that list was uh, Adam Wainwright and uh, Cole Hamels, who's been throwing lately. Um, yeah, top of that list was Joe Maurer, B.J. Upton, Greg Miller, Zach Granke, and Edwin Jackson. Um, not bad. All right, so moving on to this year's list, the top 10 overall, Gunnar Henderson, Orioles third base slash shortstop. Number two, Corbin Carroll, D-backs outfielder. Number three, Mets catching prospect Francisco Alvarez. We've seen all these guys in the big leagues already. Uh First player on the list we've not seen in the big leagues yet, Jordan Walker, Cardinals outfield slash third base prospect. Then number five, Yankees shortstop Anthony Volpe. Number six, Phillies right-handed pitcher Andrew Painter. Uh, Number seven, the right-hander he supplanted as the top overall pitching prospect in baseball, Grayson Rodriguez. Number eight, the third youngest player on this list, Jackson Churio, Brewers outfield prospect. Number nine is Marcelo Meyer of the Red Sox, another shortstop on the list. And then number 10, Ellie De La Cruz of the Reds, uh, shortstop slash third base prospect. Of course, the entire top 100 prospect list is on the site. 
Uh, and you can go to MLB.com slash pipeline to check that out. And we're really going to dig into uh, this list when we do our draft here in just a little bit. Um, but first, we want to talk to a player who's on the list. He's number 43 on the list. And uh, I believe he's probably the uh, one of the very few players we've ever had on a top 100 prospects list who's on the list and the owner of a World Series ring. That's Hunter Brown. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jim Callis with MLB Pipeline here with Astros right-hander Hunter Brown, who's a rookie this year and also uh, will have a World Series ring as he uh, as he embarks on his baseball career. Um, Hunter, I want to talk to you. I mean, your story is pretty incredible to me. If I have it right, I mean, I know you're, you're from suburban Detroit. There was not much interest in you recruiting or scouting out of high school, right? And you, and you wound up at Wayne State, which was local. Did you have many offers? Was that your only offer out of high school? Yeah, I mean, I didn't get uh, I didn't get much love out of out of high school, but rightfully so. You know, I was uh, just a mid '80s righty, um, pretty standard, you know, lack of control stuff, things like that in uh, in high school. And then, yeah, I had a, uh, you know, I had a good year, my junior year and my senior year offensively. So I had a, uh, I had an opportunity to play at uh, Eastern Michigan with a walk on role and kind of. And I wasn't sure if that was going to be, you know, behind the plate at the time I was catching or uh, on the mound, you know. So and then I had I had some D3 stuff, but definitely Wayne State was my only true like scholarship offer that that I had. But, um, you know, it was a school that I wanted to I wanted to go to regardless of, of baseball. So, um, you know, it all kind of just worked out that way. And Coach Kelly had me on campus visit and just kind of fell in love with the place even more and, and, and the opportunities that, that I thought I had there and just kind of went with that. When did you start seeing scouts at your games? Did you see any scouts at all in high school or, or when did they start showing up at Wayne State to see you? Yeah, I mean, pretty much my junior year, you know, I had a uh, freshman, sophomore year. We do, you know, every year they do like a, a scout day. Um and then you kind of just get on the mound and whether that's in a, uh, like a scrimmage setting or just like in the bullpens, I, you know, threw a little bit in front of them, but I wasn't really any eye popping numbers. I was, you know, low nineties, maybe not touching 92, 93, uh, both my freshman and sophomore year. And then kind of my sophomore year summer, um, I was playing in the Cal Ripken league for the Bethesda big train. I kind of saw an uptick in velo and then, uh, went over and finished out the the summer in, in the Cape and then came back and we had another uh, scout day at, at Wayne State. And then that was kind of the first time that I really, you know, saw some true interest in, in myself directly from scouts. And then, uh, yeah, pretty much the rest of my, my junior year uh, season. And I know like from talking to scouts that spring, like a lot of times with the small school kids, they'll, they'll pop some, especially pitchers, you know, they're thrown to the gun on scout day. They might pop some velo. And then guys go back in the spring and they don't see the same stuff or they see it early and they don't hold it. And I remember talking to scouts, Hunter, and they were impressed because it like anytime like I talked to a guy who'd seen you, it's like still throwing hard, like whole spring. What yeah. were your expectations on draft day? Did you have much feel for where you were going in the draft? I mean, we kind of heard if I had to, you know, the draft can always be murky. I, I guess I would have guessed maybe third to fifth round. I was yeah. a little surprised, even though it was a D2 program, 
that you lasted to the fifth round with the kind of arm you'd showed people. What what did you expect on draft day? Yeah, I mean, going going into my junior year, I just kind of hoped to get drafted. And then I, you know, I had a great season. I did. So I kind of didn't really have too many expectations simply on the fact that, you know, not many guys had had gone and gotten drafted on, you know, day one or two from Wayne State. We had Anthony Bass, who was a fifth rounder, probably, you know, 10 years before I was. And then other than that, you know, we had some some 30 to 40 round guys getting some opportunities to play. So I really wasn't exactly sure. And then I didn't I didn't really have, um, you know, anybody that I, that really knew either. So I was kind of just up in the air on on, you know, what we were looking for. My advisor at the time, we were just, you know, thinking thinking day two would be would be great and try and get off the board before, you know, some of those like senior signs come in in the ninth and tenth round, stuff like that, because then you kind of you know, you fall past those rounds and it's kind of, you know, a, a shot of where you're going to go. So, yeah, pro- you know, I just was hoping to get drafted on day two in, in in the in the earlier rounds of day two. When the Astros took you, did you know beforehand how, I guess, advanced is the right word they are in terms of pitcher development? I mean, they do some great work with a lot of pitchers. I mean, you look at the World Series staff. You know, it's not necessarily guys who are big names and you look up and they're they're doing big things in the big leagues. Did you have any idea how advanced they were at, at developing pitchers or did you learn that after you joined the organization? Yeah, I mean, I'd heard that they that they were kind of the front runners in a lot of this new technology and things like that. And I mean, at the, at my time at Wayne State, kind of rap soda was just was just getting, uh, you know, across the country and we didn't play the field with Trackman in there. So actually there was uh it was Scott Oberman, who's uh, the area scout up here. He he set up a track man for me in a pregame bullpen before one of my starts. And I kind of – I had never even seen one of those. So I was like, okay, these people must really care. You know, sort of <laughs> cares about these kind of numbers that that this, uh, you know, machine spits out. So I kind of I kind of knew from then, from like there on, what, what organizations kind of valued more of those things, especially being at a smaller school, not knowing what, what kind of numbers I was putting up, you know, how that might influence my own, my own draft status. So then, I mean, you come out of a smaller school, you get drafted and then bam, the pandemic hits. So you're kind of left on your own for development, your first full season of pro ball, which is an important year in a lot of careers because you're, you're just getting going and it's year round for the first time with, with a professional environment. You know, talking to the Astros, I had a couple of different people praise like the work you did on your own during the pandemic. They even told me, I think you built a homemade mound so you could pitch at home. What what did you do during the pandemic? Uh, yeah, to kind of keep uh, going. <laughs> well, so we have a uh, my my father owns some property in uh, what we just call up north Michigan. It's a uh, it's outside of Grayling. He's got some land up there, so we actually used a. Uh, like those orange snow fences. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's just basically like kind of plastic mm-hmm. type fence. So yeah, my dad and I wrapped that around a couple of poles and, you know, kind of there's a, like the, the driveway was slanted down, kind of used that <laughs> and, and through that. Cause you know, he couldn't, he couldn't really catch me at the time, you know, maybe in my, my younger days, but yeah, so that, that's what I was doing. And then, um, you know, once the weather kind of turned, I w- I did a lot of work with uh, Paul Fry, who who's been in the big leagues for a while. He's got some some years of service time, and then uh, Nick Plummer, who uh, right. debuted Mets last this past year, and 
so it was kind of us three, you know, a couple other guys in the area, just kind of really just getting after it and talking and bouncing ideas off of each other. And, um, yeah, that was, that was really great for me because I, you know, was learning new pitches in, um, in short season, you know, I developed a curveball and I hadn't really, you know, I threw maybe 20 innings in, in the New York Penn league at the time. So I really hadn't faced any hitters with it. So it was actually COVID turned out to be really, really great thing for my development personally, because there wasn't as much of a pressure and throwing, you know, in the game where the results truly, truly matter, where, you know, I could, I could really hone in, hone in my craft on those pitches and, and try and develop them. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the curveball because I remember, like, did you even throw a curve at Wayne State? No, it's kind of a funny story. I I tried my junior year, and my I mean, I was spiking this thing maybe forty five feet. So my catcher at the time was like, "Hey, we need something that we can at least some <laughs> strike zone." So that's why I just stuck with fastball slider. And then, uh, you know, they sent out those questionnaires, and I mean, I I said that I threw one, even though I I really didn't. I just I had a grip that I used, and you know, I was throwing them forty five feet, but I figured you know, at least maybe it'll give me a chance to show that I can throw another pitch. And then once I got with, with the Astros and uh, after the draft went to the, to the complex, um, they asked me to throw it and yeah, it just, I had a great day with it. I mean, I threw probably four or five in a row, like kind of really good pitches and good shape, good velo. And they're like, yeah, this is, uh, this is going to be probably your best pitch in your arsenal. You need to, you need to start really working on it. So that's what, that's what I did. And so did you hone that during the pandemic? Because I, I want to say, like, I don't remember hearing much about the curveball until Instructional League in 2020 after the pandemic. And I had Astros guys telling me, it's like a Tyler Glass now curveball. But, like, same thing you just said. They're like, this might be his best pitch. And I was like, I thought he threw a slider. I didn't even realize he threw a curveball. I mean, is that something you really honed over the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I kind of naturally, with my arm slot, is probably more suited for a curveball as it is. So um, mostly just, like, location, I felt like, the shape kind of always remains similar. Um, and then just getting comfortable with it allowed me to just throw it harder. So yeah, definitely after the pandemic, um, allowed me to come in, come into instructs and, and really have the shape and, and the velocity, uh, honed in. How would you rank your four pitches today? If you were ranking them in order from, from best to, to least effective at this point? Well, numbers wise, they'll probably tell you my curveball, but personally, you know, just like any power pitcher, I love throwing my fastball. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, this this past year, the slider was really a pitch that I leaned on a lot um, it, uh, to both bad sides, really. You know, it ended up being a, a really high percentage ground ball pitch for me. And I ended up getting a lot of weak contact from left handers, which was, you know, even the year before in double A and triple A, it was a pitch that. You know, if I wasn't really locating it that well that day, I couldn't I couldn't um, capitalize on throwing it to lefties as much as righties. So um, I think I think the curveball is is probably my best pitch. Um, and then I would probably go probably slider, probably my both breaking balls and then and then my fastball followed by the changeup. But um you know, I'm pretty pretty comfortable with all of them. Even my changeup, I feel like, is is a decent pitch. I just don't necessarily throw it all that often, being that I have two two plus breaking balls in in my opinion. So, um, that that's probably the order I would go with. Yeah, no, I mean it's a, it's a pretty impressive repertoire, and I, you know your repertoire gets compared a lot of times to Justin Verlander's. And I was curious, were you a you're growing up in Detroit? Were you a Verlander fan? And and if so, what's it like when you get to the big leagues? You're on a team with Justin Verlander. 
And I even remember like you had a really impressive debut in the big leagues and Justin Verlander had all these really complimentary quotes about how awesome it was to see that in action. So, I mean, were you a big Verlander fan growing up and what was it like being on a team with him? Yeah. I mean, growing, growing up right around here, obviously, you know, he was doing some very amazing things and they, they had, they had some really good ball clubs here in Detroit at the time when I was, you know, in my early teens and, and even into my years of college and, and the end of high school baseball. So I was, I was a huge Justin Verlander fan. I, I really enjoyed watching Max Scherzer. Um, you know, David Price had, had some good years here too. Um, I always just kind of marveled at the fact that these guys, you know, like Joel Zumaya, um, Scherzer, Verlander, these guys threw so hard. And so, yeah, we would be, you know, but my buddies and I, we would be in the yard and we would try, we would try and mimic them and, and their windups and the way they threw and, you know, the pitches that they threw. And, you know, I just, I really liked Verlander's things and he was honestly, he was doing the best. So why would I not try <laughs> him? And then, yeah, like you said, you know, I met him a couple times prior to to getting up with the big club last year. Um, and, you know, he's just he's a great role model for me. He's he's an awesome guy, um, really receptive to to all my, um, I guess, dumb rookie questions that <laughs> I. Him. So, um, yeah, it was just I guess it was one of those things where you kind of have to you know, be where your feet are because the little kid in me wants to be like, Oh my gosh, you know, that's Justin Verlander. But then I'm <laughs> as, you know, as a professional now, it's like, wow, this guy obviously has something figured out where he's been so successful for so long. So really just trying to, trying to pick his brain and in, in that facet and uh, take what I could from him. So, you know, obviously when you're a baseball player, the dream is getting to the big leagues, you know, which you did last September, which is really cool, but you didn't just make a big league debut you made the playoff roster and you guys won the world series. I, I mean, I, I know you didn't get to pitch in the world series. Maybe that's the only thing that might've been a little bit better, but you, you pitched in the first couple rounds. What is it like you're in the big leagues for the first time in September and you're part of a world series champion, like an actual part you're on the team a month later. I, I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was obviously really cool. Um, just like, you know, when you're a kid, that's what you dream of. Um, and yeah, I didn't. I didn't get the opportunity to actually pitch in the World Series, but just being a part of that team was um, was something you know that I'll remember for the rest of my life. All those guys in the, in the clubhouse and and just what an incredible run that that we went on. Um, and yeah, being able to contribute even even the bit that I did was uh, you know something that obviously makes me feel really good. But also you know that was that was at the first two months of of my my big league career. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully that gives me a little something to to try and help us uh, continue to do so and, and win some more ranks. How much more nerve wracking was it to pitch in your first playoff game than it was in your first big league game? Was it any different or did you feel more comfortable because you pitched 20 innings in the big leagues by that point? Well, I felt like uh, at that time I kind of had my role of like, hey, you know, it's going to be up or down decent decent amount you know later innings kind of thing or or bridge the gap between you know the the big guns we had at the back of the bullpen and the starters so in the in the first game uh of of the ALDS against the um the Mariners I kind of you know game one we were I think we were down four I want to say maybe three runs um so it was kind of like hey okay I know my job I got to come in I got to fill it up just you know, just so focused on that. And then 
my second outing, it kind of, you know, it was extra innings. It was like, Hey, okay, they score, you know, the game's over. And so that was, that was a lot different. And plus, uh, you know, just a different ballparks for me still, you know, I'd never been, I'd never been to Seattle or Yankee stadium. So, um, you know, just kind of trying to adjust and get comfortable in in those situations. Um, but the minor leagues and, and things like that help prepare you for that. And then, you know, at the end of the day that, you know, you just got to go out there and try and execute pitches. Yeah. Well, Hunter, it's been fun watching your development over the last, I guess, four or five years. And I remember when guys first told me about you probably the spring of 2018. It was after scout day. They were like, not guy to put on the top 100 yet, but here's a guy you're going to want to keep an eye on the spring. And Fast forward, I mean, four years later, you're winning a World Series. That's that's pretty cool. And really looking forward to watching you pitch in the big leagues this year and beyond. And, and thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Hunter. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jonathan Mayo, Sam Dykstra, and in spirit, Jim Callis. I wish somebody did a a good Jim Callis impersonation so uh, that person could uh, have do Jim making his picks here. But there there really is no uh, duplicating James Callis III. He's one of a kind. He is one of a kind. Uh, we are about to get into our top 100 prospects draft. Get those words in order. It's important. Um, this idea was was born uh, just, I guess, last week. I stumbled upon a prospect fantasy draft that we did. When was it, Jonathan? Do you remember? Was it 2018? Maybe. I, I don't. I don't remember last it, week. It, it was like five years ago uh, with Jim, Jonathan. Uh, Mike Rosenbaum, myself, our old friend Jordan Schusterman, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we did a we did a prospect fantasy league, and it was pretty uh, pretty crude. Just you know, drafted a guy at each position, um, and then we we tracked the stats manually over the course of a year. And I I found that the draft results, and I sent it around to these guys, and it was funny because you don't look at it now. You don't look at it like, oh, how'd these guys do? And 2018 or whatever it was you you look at it like no who are these guys now and uh i said we should we should do a a, we should do this but based on long-term value um so that's what we're doing we're going to each draft a team um one player per position a left-handed starter right-handed starter uh and then we'll check back in uh what 10 15 years guys Check check back and see who. Sure, won. we'll all still be here. Um, I, I said an Outlook reminder, so twenty thirty three. If Outlook still exists, I'm going to get a ping. Yep. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, set the order, randomized it, um, and Jim came out on top, uh, followed by Jonathan, Sam, and myself. Uh, if Jim were here, he would certainly say Serpentine. It's got to be. Serpentine draft, uh, so it is. Uh, Ten picks each, forty overall. We've already made the picks. We're not gonna, we're going to spare you the the hemming and the hawing in between picks. Uh, so we've made the picks. 
and we'll we'll go through each of them and uh, sort of provide some analysis along the way. Uh, Jim starts off, and uh, not much surprise, he takes the number one overall prospect, Gunnar Henderson. Did did anyone was that a, was that a surprise to anyone? Not not really, and I can uh, share what uh, you know. Jim shared some some thoughts uh, with us, and uh, you'll, you're going to see a lot of position scarcity picks i think in this in this draft but he didn't think it was obvious uh he thought about tamar johnson in terms of value relative to his position but didn't want to take him one one thought about corbin carroll because we need three outfielders and then he just decided i'm gonna take the best player and the best player is gunner henderson yeah and and i think also you know being now on our third base list his primary position being third base gives him more value than if he was still primarily a shortstop, right? But just because of the the glut of top 15 overall shortstops. Uh, all right. So, uh, Jonathan, pick number two. I, I kind of went according to chalk. You know, I took uh, the best player, also knowing that we would need uh, three outfielders. So I took Corbin Carroll. And to me, uh, I was kind of in a good position because I could react off of what Jim was going to do at one. And once he took Gunner, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to take Corbin all Carroll. Right. And pick number three to Sam. Yeah, I'm I'm following the the chalk outline here. Uh, Francisco Alvarez, our number three overall prospect, went number three to me. Um, it's a little bit advantageous for me because I, I don't think catching's as deep necessarily as some of these other positions. So I wanted to get him here. Um, the good thing about this is that it is long term value. That's why we ranked him number three, even if he's not a great catcher right now. We think he could be one of the greats just in terms of his offensive value. Um, and again, if we're checking back in 10 years and he's hitting 30, 35 home runs a year, uh, I, th- I think I'm going to be in a good spot with Francisco Alvarez. All right. So first three picks go in order. One, two, three down the top 100 prospects list. And uh, I, I'll continue the trend at number four. Jordan Walker of the Cardinals outfield slash third base. And I, you know, I was like, oh, this is like my worst fear when we do one of these drafts that we're just going to go straight down the list. Um, uh, <laughs> but you know, the rankings here are, are drafting here is based on future value. So it, it makes some sense that we'd be going down the list because that's what the list is based on. Um, but obviously having to take things like position scarcity and team position needs into account, it'll all work out. But uh, as of now we go one, two, three, four. I also, you know, I'm from St. Louis area. I, I can't not take Jordan Walker there. I, I'm basically just taking the best available player. Um, for the sake of this exercise, I could potentially make him my third baseman, depending on how the rest of the draft shakes out. So I like the uh, position flexibility there too. Um, and now uh, turning back around, first pick of the second round, I uh, will take the first pick out of order and I'll go uh, – Pretty good ways down the list. Uh, Jim mentioned he considered Tamar Johnson at number one overall uh, along the same lines of thinking here. Uh, I take Tamar, uh, best second baseman on the board, and just feel like, uh, you know, the next highest ranked players were a shortstop and Volpe, two right-handed pitchers and Painter and Grayson Rodriguez. Uh, But I kind of viewed those positions similarly. The bunch of players bunched up four shortstops in the top 11, four right-handed pitchers in the top 16. I'll be happy with whoever I get there. 
So uh, I jump ahead 22 spots and grab Jamar Johnson, who I feel like is, uh, even though Meade is just a few spots behind him in the rankings, I feel like there's a pretty big gap between Jamar and the rest of the second baseman from my perspective. Um, All right, Sam, you are up. Yeah, I I really liked how you kind of shook things up there by taking Jamar. Um, I'm continuing to, it's not exactly chalk, but I do think you can make a case that Jackson Churio is a top five overall prospect right now. We didn't have it quite shaking out that way uh, when we did our final list, but I'm very happy to get him here at six. Uh, Plus, plus speed, really good power, can play up the middle and center field. We'll see how the rest of my draft is going to shake out if he's going to end up as my center fielder. Some questions about the arm, but like this is an, a major upside pick. He could very easily be our number one overall prospect by the midseason with graduations and with his ability to make adjustments offensively. Um, th- there's just so much upside here in Churio, so I didn't want to let him go. And also, this is the guy Jim said before the draft was even started. Yeah, well, he knew I was going to take him, <laughs> and I'm like, Jim, you can take him yourself if you want. Or like, there's lots, lots of things that could happen. I thought about taking him three, uh, but Alvarez being a catcher. Uh, I didn't want to go away from that because we do think Alvarez is going to be the better long-term player because of his offensive value. But happy to get Churio here at six. Sam, I, I was curious. Uh, you know, I picked four and I took an outfielder and Walker. I was curious whether you would have taken Churio at four with the first three picks going down as they did. Um, I don't think I would have, again, because that defensive flexibility is huge. Churio doesn't have it. He used to play shortstop. He used to play a little bit of second base, but he doesn't qualify at those spots anymore. I think the ability to move Walker between outfield or third base, depending on how the rest of your draft works out, is so big at that spot. Uh, it would have been a debate. It would have been a fun draft room discussion. We would have gone down to the wire. <laughs> in your uh, head. In my head, yeah. Trust me, there are many people in my head who are consistently talking about this draft. Uh, but no, I, I probably would have gone Walker too. All right, Jonathan with the seventh overall pick. Yeah, the Dykstra Churio connection was one we like that the the odds. You had that in your mock, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I did. That I I didn't know where exactly it would happen, but uh, so uh, you know, Jason, you mentioned that there is you know the right-handed pitching list is pretty deep. There's a a glut of guys in the you know top you know top part of the list, but I just decided that I wanted to take the guy I wanted to take for fear that he wouldn't be there. In the third round, so I took Andrew Painter. Uh, you know, he's our top pitching prospect, uh, narrowly ahead of uh, of Grayson Rodriguez. I think we've talked on the podcast before that Painter, Rodriguez, and Yuri Perez of the Marlins. You know, you could make an argument any of them could be the top, you know, right-handed pitching prospect in the, in the game or top pitching prospect based on how we have them ranked. Um, so I just kind of decided to take the guy I really wanted. You know, I think he's going to be in the big leagues this year. Not that that matters for this draft, but he, he has all, all the makings of a frontline starter. I will say, Jason, that if he had not taken Tamar Johnson, I would have in the second round. Yeah, he was, uh, I think, uh, a pretty clear pick in the top 10, despite being well outside of it. He, Jim even considering him at number one overall. All right, so Jim uh, had picks eight and nine, last pick of the second round, first of the third. And he goes Diego Cartaya, catcher for the Dodgers, and Kyle Harrison, uh, lefty for the Giants. So he gets the uh, second ranked, second highest ranked catcher there, and the top ranked left-handed pitcher on the list. And uh, Jim said that he thought the drop off after the first two catchers was pretty big, uh, so that made Cartaya an easy pick. And then he also thought that left-handed pitching was thin, 
And so he took uh, Harrison there, though he knew that was going to affect him at other positions down the line. Um, we, we should mention that there were only four first base, there were only four players who were eligible at first base, and I be- believe only four who were eligible at second base as well. Um, and some of those were a player's secondary uh, position. So in some, in some of these cases, and you'll see how this plays out, uh, you know, you would be guaranteed to get a particular player after the first three were gone uh, because there was only one left. All right. Um, we move on to, uh, and back to Jonathan. Uh, pick number 10. Yeah, I I have to say that I was surprised after back-to-back callous picks that Jackson Holiday Same. was still available. And and I understand, like, shortstop's deep, right? So uh, there are a lot of them. And I Jim's argument for taking Cartaya and Harrison – are certainly sound and, you know, it will take him a while to come back around to his back-to-back picks. But I mean, I don't know that we've gone, I haven't got a podcast, a TV appearance, a Slack conversation, uh, you know, pen pal correspondence where he has not mentioned Jackson holiday and how he thinks he's going to be the number one prospect uh, a year from now. Uh, So I, I was happy to take him. Uh, there are obviously some other shortstops, uh, and it's a deep list, but this is the number one pick in last year's draft. Uh, while I'm not ready to go all in on the Jackson holiday will be the number one prospect. It, it wouldn't shock me. And I don't, I think he's going to move pretty quickly too. So, uh, I mean, this was maybe not quite chalk cause there were some, uh, you know, obvious guys, but I, I went with the best for me, the best player available when looking at, at long-term yeah, value. Interesting that uh, there were four other shortstops ranked ahead of Holiday that you uh, skipped over uh, to take him there. And I, I, did, I didn't I did necessarily think Jim would take Holiday at eight or nine because of the you know number of shortstops in that group. But I did think, right. I thought he would probably end up on, uh, on Jim's squad. All right, so to Sam at pick number 11. All right. Well, prepare yourself. I'm about to make kind of a pun here. Um, this is where my strategy of drafting comes in. And I don't mean from like actually draft of what we're doing. I mean, more from a race standpoint of like you sit behind somebody and you wait for them and you, you know, kind of sit behind them, wait for them to make their move and then you speed past them. So when Kyle Harrison was off the board as a left-handed pitcher, I always wanted Ricky Tiedemann. I think that the debate between those two is much closer than what we have at, at 18 and 32. Uh, I think they're, you know, pretty close in terms of left-handed pitchers, but the drop-off from Tiedemann to the next group is way down. So if somebody took Harrison first, I wanted to immediately drum, jump in and get Tiedemann. So Callis took him at nine. I wanted to get Tiedemann at 11 just because I didn't want to get caught with another left-handed pitcher. Uh, Ricky Tiedemann climbed three levels last year, showed a really improved velocity uh, starting in the spring, but it carried throughout the season. They did a really good job of managing him. The changeup might be his best pitch now. He's got a really good slider as well. All the pieces are there. We just need to see more innings, but we could easily look back on this list someday and think he's the best left-handed pitcher over Harrison once he gets that experience. Yeah, and uh, Sam, you you kind of sniped Tiedemann from me here for the exact reasoning uh, behind your choosing him. I probably would have taken him uh, next uh, I was up at pick number 12, uh, and I, you know, same thing. The next two left-handed pitchers, Waldachuk, ranked number 76, D.L. Hall at 97, pretty big drop there. Um, I decided to go with Ellie De La Cruz. 
uh, afford some more uh, position flexibility, could stick him at shortstop or third base, depending on what I end up doing with Walker, uh, who has outfield third base eligibility. And, you know, was just, to me, kind of the sexiest player out there, too. And also, uh, I'm only taking guys who have been on the podcast. That I'm three for three. <laughs> wow. So far. But, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna break that string as I, I go back to back here. And now I'm going to uh, take Tristan Cassis, who gives me uh, the highest ranked player at each position on the right side of the infield. Get the highest ranked second baseman in Termar Johnson, the highest ranked first baseman in Tristan Casas. Um, and similarly, I think there's a, a pretty big gap uh, between Casas and the rest of the first baseman on the list. Um, Vargas, multi-position player, ranked 37. Uh, Soderstrom and Manzardo at 39 and 73. Uh, just felt felt like Casas was uh, the clear choice there. And then Sam, back to you at 14. Yeah, I went all upside here at number 14 with Drew Jones. Um, kind of going to what Jonathan was saying about Jackson Holiday. We got to see Jackson Holiday last year in, in the complex leagues, and he had a really good advanced approach, and that's why we're talking about him as number one overall prospect potentially at some point. I'm going to throw Jones in that conversation too, though. He, he had shoulder surgery. He didn't get to play in the complex leagues last year, so we haven't seen him um, since he was an amateur technically. Uh, but just all the pieces are there for him to be a really special five-tool player. Obviously, the defense is going to stand out. He very much follows his father in that way. Um, it's really good speed. It's better power than you might expect uh, for somebody who is that quick. Maybe some questions about the hit tool, and that kind of could hold him back a little bit. Uh, maybe that's part of the reason why he dropped to number two with the D-backs last year. Um, but if we're looking at long-term value here, this might be an opportunity to get him at a low point coming off the shoulder. You know, Maybe... He comes back just as strong. We saw Corbin Carroll come back from a shoulder injury in that same organization a year ago and leap by several bounds last year. Um, so, you know, Drew Jones has all the pieces to be a superstar player, and I'm happy to get him here. Even if he's an outfielder, outfielder is pretty deep, but I just want him on my roster. All right, Jonathan at 15. That's a good outfielder, yeah, really. and I'm Jones just saying. so far. Um, yeah, yeah. So... You know, I'm looking back. Uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So, Jason, if I had taken Ellie De La Cruz in the third round, would you have taken Jackson Holiday? No, I, I think my philosophy all along was that I was going to wait on shortstops because I really, I didn't care a whole lot whether I got Volpe, Meyer, De La Cruz, Lawler, Holiday. They're they're all in yeah. the top twelve. Uh, I don't feel like a lot separates them, and I was I was going to wait. So, you know, in retrospect, I could have taken Ellie De La Cruz and then still gotten Jackson Holiday um, in, in, in the next round, you know, unless unless Sam would have taken him instead of Drew Jones. But to your point, there were other options. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, after you took Tristan Cassis, I also looked at the first baseman list and didn't want to wait. And I kind of was trying to decide between Tyler Soderstrom and Kyle Manzardo. And I, I, uh, I have been on the Kyle Manzardo train probably earlier, you know, longer than, than anybody. And I really like him, but, uh, I mean, Soderstrom's really, really going to hit. And I think he, you know, he's also a catcher, um, which could have afforded me some, some flexibility, uh, if I really wanted to. Uh, but I really was looking at him as my first base bat and he's the next best first baseman. And, and then, you know, 
after Manzardo, I felt, uh, you know, I, I wasn't looking as much at the position flexibility, but I still like Soderstrom better than the other first base options. So that's why I took him uh, here in round four. All right. Um, Jim had picks 16 and 17. He took Nats outfielder James Wood and Mets third baseman slash outfielder Brett Beatty. Um, Jim said he felt like no one that he had hoped would slide a little uh, and get to his next pick ever did. Everyone was making good picks throughout. Thank you, Jim. Um, but he said Beatty, Beatty qualifying in the outfield was a nice break for him. Um, so he uh, takes Wood and Beatty, and then it's back to Jonathan at 18. Yeah, I, I sort of was looking at that catcher list and decided uh, to, to take the catcher that I wanted. And I am a big believer in, in Harry Ford, um, even though he is behind um, some catchers. That, well, one, one other catcher on that catching list. But uh, I think I had the hot take on the podcast when we were doing breaking down our top 10 positions that I, I thought Harry Ford and the Mariners would be the number one catcher on, on that list a year from now. Uh, super athletic. He could end up playing other positions, but he's really good behind the plate. I, I think he's going to stick behind the plate and there's no reason to move him. Uh, so I went you know, a little bit of an upside play because he's only played an A ball, uh, but I'm going to bet on the athlete behind the dish. All right. And then to Sam at 19. Yeah. So this is where positional scarcity obviously played a part for me. And again, my drafting strategy of just waiting for somebody to take Soderstrom. And then I thought, okay, well now I'm going to have to jump in and take Manzardo. I'll be honest. I had not considered Vargas at first base, um, which is pro- probably Same. an error on my part. Uh, but Manzardo is a true first baseman. He is not playing anywhere else. There is no flexibility here. He is locked into first base. If anything, the only th- other thing he can do is DH. Um, but man, can this guy hit? I mean, Jonathan, you were saying, you know, going back to his collegiate days, how much of a fan you were and how he took off last year. Didn't strike out that much. Didn't strike out more than 16.7% of the time at either high A or double A. Um, took his walks, was hitting above 320 at, at both stops. Showed a little bit of power, but that was more just putting the ball in play and, and taking advantage of some strength. Now the Rays are going to try to increase his athleticism a little bit, squeeze a little bit more power out of him, maybe get him to above average power. But man, it just feels like the guy rolls out of bed and hits everywhere he goes. Um, he's probably going to AAA this year, could be in Tampa Bay pretty soon. Uh, getting him there at first base, knowing that he's going to clear the offensive bar that is there for a tough position um, was you know, too good for me to look past that. And uh, I, I wanted him on my roster if I could get him. So, yes, uh, Vargas is probably the better prospect. But if we're looking at just first baseman, pure first baseman, uh, Manzardo is almost, in, in my eyes, could end up being right there with Tristan Costa someday. That's good spin right <laughs> there. <laughs> I'm both <laughs> running PR and draft strategy. So. I love it. Yeah, Jim, Jim said in his notes that he left us that it, the – Felt like the only break that he caught was when Sam took Manzardo, which meant that he could push Vargas to his last pick. Um, and he kind of assumed he'd be his first baseman when the when this started. So, um, all right, that back to me for two picks. Uh, you know, at this point, so Jonathan uh, reached for Ford and he explained why. Um, and he skipped Parada, uh, the higher ranked catcher. Um, so now the other three squads all have their catchers. So I know. I can take, like you know, I can settle for Parada, the higher ranked of the two there. 
so I, I can wait on my catcher. Uh, right-handers, I really don't care too much, uh, you know, of the of the remaining guys, whether I get Yuri Perez, uh, Espino, um, Grayson Rodriguez. I, I feel like all three of those guys are pretty close. And I mentioned the shortstops before. So uh, I need some outfielders. And I'm going to go with Pete Crow Armstrong of the Cubs at uh, pick number 20. He's ranked 28th overall, and I'll go with Sal Frelick of the Brewers. Uh, a couple of NL Central guys at 20 and 21. Frelick ranked 30th. Um, so I, I skip over uh, one outfielder there in Zach Bean, but I have uh, now have my outfield set if I want to play Jordan Walker in the outfield with Walker, Armstrong, and Frelick. I'd take an 80-grade defensive outfielder, and a 70-grade hit tool in Freilich. I'm pretty happy with those. And then, Sam, uh, to you at 22 for your sixth-round pick. Yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna stay in the Rays organization here. And if I kind of overlooked Vargas a little bit because of the defensive flexibility, I think Curtis Mead actually kind of got overlooked a little bit too because we were thinking Jamar Johnson is a clear number one at second base, not really many people close. I'd argue Curtis Mead is, is pretty close. I mean, we have him third base slash second base. Uh, but if I were to pick a position for him, I think second base might be the better fit just because of so many questions with his arm, especially coming off an elbow issue last year. But again, you talk about a guy who can hit. Curtis Mead can really hit. I mean, he's got such a simple approach at the plate, stands up straight in that box, can see the ball really well, and just hits doubles for days. Those are going to turn into homers. He's going to settle into 15, 20 homers, uh, I think, in the major leagues. Can play second base decently well, get him on the dirt. And you, you look at my roster so far, you got Alvarez with power, you got Churio with power, you got Jones with speed. Manzardo's a hit tool guy, Mead's a hit tool guy. So now we're starting to get a little bit more well-rounded of a roster. Um, so happy to get Mead here as my second baseman. All right. Jonathan up at number 23. Yeah, so left-handed pitching, we've talked about it's not as deep a list as the righties. Um, I feel like there is a huge drop-off. Uh, I mean, I think there was a drop-off from the top two already went, but I also think there's a separation between Ken Waldachek, who I took, and D.L. Hall, who's the the other top 100 lefty. And, uh, you know, looking at that separation, I went with the guy who I think has more certainty to be a starting pitcher long-term in the big leagues. I think D.L. Hall is going to be a big leaguer, but I think the jury's still out whether he starts or relieves. So I decided... Uh, that I wanted Waldachuk now rather than, you know, be forced to to take a lefty I wasn't as high on. All right. So then to Jim for his sixth and seventh round picks. In the sixth round, he gets the number seven ranked overall prospect in Grayson Rodriguez. Uh, so a good value there, obviously. And then he takes uh, number 54 overall, Michael Bush of the Dodgers, um, which with him being guaranteed Vargas, uh, at the end, and he's already got Diego Cartaya, Jim loading up on Dodgers. I think no surprise there. And uh, Jonathan, back to you. Yeah, I mean, I th- it's curious to see how many guys we took from the organizations we do the top 30s for. Uh, I remembered position flexibility uh, with this pick. Uh, hadn't been as cognizant of it or mindful of it. So, you know, Andy Rodriguez with the Pirates – uh, you know, I, I think he's in my brain. He's a catcher first, but he does play a bunch of second base. We'll see where he ends up playing in the big leagues. 
I think he can really, really hit after the huge year that he had last year. Uh, I don't need the positional flexibility at this point in terms of I'm not going to put him in one of the other spots. But the fact that he qualifies at second base uh, made me feel better about who I was putting in that spot. And I don't I don't think from an offensive ceiling standpoint, there's that much separating Andy Rodriguez from, uh, well, he's only one spot behind Michael Bush, but even the other, you know, uh, even a guy like Curtis Mead. All right. And uh, Sam, the 27th overall pick. Yeah. So for me here, uh, you know, once Grayson Rodriguez came off the board and we already had Andrew Painter with Jonathan taking him much higher, uh, I thought there was a clear big three for right-handed pitchers. I, I know Daniel Espino is ranked pretty high for us, but he's coming off a knee. He's coming off a shoulder. There's every bit of chance he could be a dominant closer someday, but that's not somebody I necessarily wanted when I'm just making one right-handed pitcher pick. So I wanted to get Yuri Perez once he was – it was down to the two of them. Uh, Yuri Perez, our 13th overall prospect – it's so crazy to me that he was 19 years old last year at AA for the entire season. He didn't climb multiple levels to get there. He was aggressive in sending him there. Yes, the results weren't necessarily going to pop off the page in a baseball card kind of way, but it's a plus-plus fastball, plus-plus changeup. Controls the ball really well for a guy who is six foot eight. Uh, it's it's just incredible, his mix of stuff and size and youth. Um, so, you know, again, once... I knew that the other big two were off the board for me. I wanted to lock in the third of the big three for right-hand pitching prospects and get Yuri Perez. Yeah, and then back to me for uh, seventh and eighth round picks. And as I had mentioned, uh, you know, I, I was fine with my right-hander being Perez, Rodriguez, Espino. Um, so with with uh, Sam taking Perez there, I knew that I could have my pick of whatever right-hander I wanted remaining, and, and basically when when Jonathan took uh, Waldachuk, my draft was pretty well complete. Um, I got the I would get the only left hander remaining. Um, everyone else has catcher, left hander, and right hander filled, so I get my pick there, uh, which basically just leaves me uh, to make a choice of the three shortstops among the top eleven overall, and I will take the highest ranked one. And Anthony Volpe, who's number five overall, which means I'm left with the highest ranked remaining right-hander, Espino, catcher, Parada, and uh, left-hander, D.L. Hall, if that's what, the way I want to go. And I will uh, go ahead and take Espino at number 29. And then back to you, Sam, at 30. Yeah, so this is, again, uh, I had waited to take my shortstop. Marcelo Meyer is my pick here. He's ninth overall. If we were doing this just without positional considerations whatsoever. Marcelo Meyer is going to go a lot earlier than number 30. Uh, but, you know, just because I, I knew I could wait, I, I would have been happy to get Volpe if Jim didn't, or if Jason didn't take Volpe there, I certainly would have with this pick. Um, but I'm happy to get Meyer plus hit tool, really, really good defender. I think that gives him the leg up on Jordan Lawler, even though Jordan Lawler made double A last year and played a little bit in the fall league, I think Myers just going to be a better defender, a more well-rounded prospect. That's why we have him ranked higher than we do. And then when it's coming down to those two guys left in the top 11, um, I just wanted to make sure I get Meyer and his defense uh, for me. So it, it, it could be some really special defenders on my in my team too with Churio and left, Drew Jones in center. Uh, we'll see how right field is going to, work out but um i know i have some other defensive deficiencies but getting those guys i think is a pretty strong core 
All right, uh, Jonathan, your eighth round pick. I love it as if we're going to be doing defensive evaluations of these guys. Um, so I, at this point, I need two outfielders and a third baseman. And I knew who I, uh, I wanted as my third baseman. And I had a feeling I could wait. So I wanted to get my outfielders. And, you know, was fortunate, uh, you know, that Jason, you kind of skipped over this guy to take Pete Crow Armstrong and Sal Fralick uh, when you took your your outfielders. Um, but, uh, so for me, taking Zach Veen was, you know, made the most sense. And he's the highest rated outfielder still on the, on the board. Uh, you know, we saw him in the fall league where he hit really well. He, you know, the, the, the speed is better than expected. You know, the only question with Zach Veen is where the power, you know, is going to be. And I think it's going to come. All you have to do is watch it. And he's going to fill into that, that frame left-handed hitter. And, uh, you know, I, I think he may be in the big leagues by the end of this year, if not next year. All right. Uh, and then two picks for Jim. He gets the remaining uh, shortstop. Uh, Sam talked about his decision between uh, Marin Lawler. Jim takes Jordan Lawler at number 32. And then at number 33, another darling of Jim's, Evan Carter, which he uh, said in his notes, no surprise to anyone that uh, he would end up with Carter. Uh, Rangers outfielder. Ranked number 41 on the top 100 list goes number 33 to Jim and then back to Jonathan. Yeah. So like I said, uh, you know, outfielder, third baseman, I decided to reach a little bit here. Um, this is a long-term play and um, I went with Emmanuel Rodriguez of the twins. Who's a little bit further down on our list at 88. But you know, when we got feedback on the top 100, we had a, several people say that, uh, either we could move him up or don't be surprised if he shoots up. He got hurt last year. Otherwise, he probably would be higher on the list. We want to kind of have him do it for an actual full season. I think he's going to, and it would not surprise me if Emmanuel Rodriguez is a top 20 prospect uh, at this point a year from now. So uh, a little long-term play, jumped over a whole bunch of outfielders to, to take him, but um, I kind of like the upside. All right, and then to Sam for his penultimate pick. Yeah, so I have two picks left, and one needs to be a third baseman. The other needs to be an outfielder. Um, when I was looking at this, I I wanted to go really high ceiling with one and a decent floor with the other. So I went floor here early, uh, which is Josh Young of the Texas Rangers as my third baseman. He would have been gradu- or he would have graduated last year if not for uh, his own injuries, the labrum tear in his left shoulder uh, to begin the year. He m- eventually made the Texas roster, showed what we thought he could be, you know, an above average hitter plus power, uh, decent defender at the hot corner. But we already know he's a major leaguer. He's going to be there for a while. There's another third baseman who Jonathan's going to take uh, in a little bit who might usurp. Young at a certain point, but I, I just really like that we already know who he is. We already know where, he, where he's going to be. It's just how good is he going to be over the next decade? Um, there are fewer question marks. So Young's my third base pick here at number 35. All right. I have the 36th pick. I need a catcher and a left-handed pitcher. I know I'm getting D.L. Hall uh, as the only remaining left-hander. So my catcher decision, uh, once Jonathan uh, went down the list to uh, take the lower-ranked catcher uh, available in Harry Ford a, a few rounds ago. Uh, that left me with Kevin Parada, number 36 overall, if I want him. 
I did scan down the list a bit, uh, thought there's maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a safer bet in, in Logan O'Hoppy. I, I think you guys have talked about him having a very high floor, but uh, Parada, the, the highest ranked remaining catcher at number 36, I'll take him there. And then I get Dio Hall, who is the lowest ranked player taken in this draft. And once the first two left-handers went off the board, um, and we mentioned the drop-off uh, between them and then Walter Chuck at 76 and D.L. Hall at 97, I didn't feel like there was, and I know uh, Sam, uh, or I guess Jonathan, uh, when you took Walter Chuck, you cited the gap between the two, but I was I was going to be okay with either of those guys, and uh, hopefully Hall remains a uh, starter for my my the future of my team. And then uh, Sam. Your 10th pick? Yeah, so for my last pick, I, I said I, I was going to go floor with one, and I was going to go ceiling with the other, and I really liked what, what Jonathan did with Emmanuel Rodriguez, um, so I decided to have some fun with my last one too and went all ceiling with Elijah Green. Um, Elijah Green entered last spring as a potential first overall candidate, obviously got passed by uh, Jackson Holiday and Drew Jones on, in that consideration, ends up going fifth overall to the Nats. Struggled with high fastballs. There are some serious swing and miss issues here. But, man, if that clicks, if he just becomes an average hitter, he can be a superstar. The power is incredible. He has enough speed to play center field. He has enough arm to play there as well. Um, he's probably right field on my team. Again, this is fake, but, you know, I like creating a, a roster and thinking where guys are going to play. Uh, and it, it's just if – if Elijah Green just gets, like I said, an average hit tool, if he strikes out just 20 to 25% of the time, he's going to be the superstar that the Nats need to build around. Him and James Wood are, are two really good foundational pieces for them um, that their rebuild could be centered around. So uh, getting Green here, again, long-term play. Uh, I know it's going to be a slow process with him, but if it, if it all works, this could be looking really, really good in, in just two years' time, never mind 10. Yeah, that's a that is a very high uh, ceiling outfield you've you've assembled there. Seriously. And now the three the three people who uh, are responsible for assembling our top 100 prospects list each took an outfielder who's ranked lower than two who did not get taken in this draft in uh, Robert Hassel, the third, and Colton Hauser, Colton Kauser, uh, who were number 35 and 40. Jim took Evan Carter. Number 41, Jonathan took Emmanuel Rodriguez, number 88, and Sam takes Elijah Green, number 46. Uh, but I think you each, uh, with the exception of Jim, who's not here to uh, explain his pick, explained why that happened quite well. So, all right, two remaining picks, Jonathan and Jim, number 39 and 40. Jonathan, your third baseman. Well, we teased it for a while. Cam Collier is my pick from the Reds, uh, first rounder. Uh, his dad, Lou, played in the big leagues. Uh, again, I went, I went upside pick here. I, I like him better than the other third base options. Now, had I been able to take Miguel Vargas, you know, if he hadn't been sort of pigeonholed into being Jim's first baseman and the last pick of the draft uh, coming after me, I might have taken Vargas over Collier. Uh, but I'm very happy taking Cam Collier because I, I think he's really going to hit. And I, and I, uh, I will agree with Sam. What he hinted at, I do think Cam Collier will be better than Josh Young when all is said and done. All right. And uh, as we've mentioned several times, the final pick to Jim Callis is Miguel Vargas, who will be his first baseman, the number 37 ranked prospect overall. So, all right, that's uh, 
that does it for our draft. We will uh, we'll post these things, and uh, I'll be curious to find out what people think, who got the best team. We did a quick and dirty uh, estimation based on prospect points, um, giving 100 points for the number one overall prospect down to, no, to one for number 100, which certainly not scientific, but give you a, a rough gauge. And uh, Jim's team, 789 prospect points, Sam's 744, mine 735, and Jonathan's 587. So Jonathan uh, making the most reaches. Don't sleep. The, Don't sleep on we'll me. See. We'll see. Uh, we'll check back and uh, when Sam's Outlook reminder tells us to. And would you set it for 10 years or 15, Sam? I, I set it for 10, but I can do a second one if we need it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I'm losing in 10 years, I'm setting one for 15. Is, uh, that's right. I sa- and I said, don't sleep on me because 10 years from now, I'll probably be napping. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Let's move on to the mailbag and some questions pertaining to the top 100 list. Uh, this one comes from Sim Bobby on Twitter at S-I-M-M-B-O-B-B-Y. Why is Cartaya at 14 and Endy? At 55, seems that Endy has done everything that Cartaya has and more at higher levels. If they swap organizations, would they swap ranks as well? You know what? After reading this question, let's. I think we should switch them. Let's just switch the rankings. I'm kidding. Um, so I'm going to take the second part first because I, I tend to bristle when people tend to say we have some sort of either East Coast bias or organizational bias. And the idea that if Andy Rodriguez was in the Dodgers, would he be flipped? No. I think Andy Rodriguez is really going to hit. Um, you know, but this isn't our rankings aren't just based solely on offensive production that has already taken place. And I think there's a combination of that. I I think Cartaya is also going to hit. And I think there is more certainty that he sticks behind the plate. And Andy Rodriguez is okay behind the plate. We just don't know if he can catch every day. Uh, he moves around positions a lot and, and that has value, but in terms of ranking, you know, doing catcher to catcher, that's the separator. Now, when all is said and done, might there be less separating Andy Rodriguez and Diego Cartaya, uh, you know, than it seems based on 14 and 55. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's possible, but I think the, the little bit of the uncertainty about Andy Rodriguez defensive home, um, you know, uh, created some of that separation. All right. And uh, let's take a second question here. This one from Cole Fitzpatrick on Twitter says, who's the one prospect on your list that could go supernova like Soto slash J-Rod slash Acuna? Thinking like a 17 or 18 year old with massive tools who hasn't touched high A yet. Yeah. So I, I cheated a little bit uh, on this because they were asking about like who's 17 year old or 18 year old. And my pick was James Wood, who turned 20 in September. Um, so it's a little bit of a cheat, but he hasn't reached high A yet. He, he fits that criteria. Uh, and James Wood, just getting some of the feedback from him last year. I mean, I do the Padres list and the Nationals list. So I remember going to Padres spring training last year and just hearing, you should see James Wood. He's incredibly athletic for a six foot seven guy. He eats like acres of grass in center field. Uh, he's better out there than you think he might be. And it's like, okay, fine. And then as the year went along, hey, he's making better swing decisions than you th- would think for somebody that size and somebody with plus raw power. Okay, fine. And then the Nationals get him and they're like, oh no, he's better than advertised even. Um, so 
he's only reached a ball so far could easily see him climbing two, maybe even three levels this year if those swing decisions hold up. I mean, it, it seems like he's making the right idea when to swing, when it's in his zone, making the most of that power. He sees the ball well, uh, and that's something that usually translates. So he's something, somebody that could make a huge jump this year. We already have him at 17, but if that happens, I mean, we're talking top 10, maybe even top five overall by the midseason. All right. Thanks to Cole Fitzpatrick for that question, and thanks to Sim Bobby for the other Thanks to Hunter Brown for joining us on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Feel better, James.